Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you are there. Please listen carefully. Carefully. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Seppard. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on another episode, and this should be a good one. I love episodes where we tackle the big science news of the day, and there's been a lot of really interesting news uh, in the science world lately. So there's been the Artemis Moon Program and breakthroughs in nuclear fusion, breakthroughs in artificial intelligence. I mean, there's a lot going on. And when we have these big news stories, we'd like to bring on Varajan Gorgian. He is a friend of this program. He's an astrophysicist at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and he's super smart and really, really good at breaking down complex topics in ways that all of us can understand. So, Varajan, welcome back to the program, my friend. Oh, happy to be back. Thanks, Lawrence. Now, I'm going to, you're an astrophysicist. I'm going to go ahead and just refer to you as America's favorite astrophysicist. Is that fair? <laughs> no, no, not fair at all. <laughs> Much appreciated, but not fair. <laughs> well, friend of the program, I think you're, you're, you're our favorite astrophysicist. Okay, so. I'll, I'll take that. I, it's, it's still even more appreciated then. <laughs> so, last time I talked to you, we were talking about James Webb and all the excitement around that. And uh, a lot has happened since we last spoke. So, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about nuclear fusion, and I also want to spend a lot of time talking about Artemis. Oh, certainly, certainly. All right. So first, before we dive into talking about Artemis, which is uh, the the big topic for today, um, you know, in between booking you way back when to do this conversation, uh, there was a big breakthrough in nuclear fusion. So tell us what nuclear fusion is, what the promise is, and your reaction to uh, the hype or maybe overhype of of what was done. So nuclear fusion is, I don't think without any question, the power source of the future because it's a very natural power source. That is, this is the process that powers stars. It's when you combine, generally speaking, any two atoms, if they're, they're atoms that you can sort of force together, and once they fuse, they join, they, can, they release energy. We theoretically worked that out for quite some time. It has its roots in Einstein's theory of relativity in general, but part of that is the E equals mc squared, that energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. But the idea here is that we're converting some of the mass of that of the protons into energy. So this is the mass equivalent, though. We're not ripping off part of a proton that is going. But still, so that idea has been known, but to achieve the high densities the pressure and temperatures at the core of a star on Earth is very difficult, and people have been working on it for decades. And so the idea, though, would be to bring in you know, enough gas at a you know, high enough temperature and density so that it starts generating this excess energy, more energy than you're putting into it. The energy that's being put into getting the density at the center of a star to be so high is gravity. That is, it's so massive. It's pulling in all of this mass, so it's just you know, putting enormous pressures at the core. We don't have that here on Earth, so we have to do it in very clever ways 
like with specialized lasers and other magnetic fields and so on to really push this forward. And for the longest time, it took, you know, more energy to get this whole thing going than was generated. We were able to achieve fusion, but it wasn't, you know, net energy positive. But the big breakthrough here was that within the core of this particular experiment, they got net positive energy. So that's a huge step forward. But if you take the entirety of the system, it was not energy positive. <laughs> so uh, I would, uh, one of the jokes about fusion has been that it's, it's, a, it's a promising source of energy for the future. It keeps promising and promising and promising. And it's like promising. a bad boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so again, I, I have no doubt that this will be our energy source of the future. Uh, but unfortunately, every time we do have these really important, incredibly difficult milestones, which have been achieved, everybody's like, oh, we're almost there. It's like in five years or in 10 years. Uh, and, and from where I'm sitting, that's not quite likely to be the case. But we're certainly closer than we were before. This is a huge breakthrough. So in that sense, it's important. But we're not, I think so close that we're going to replace our, you know, forget the coal-fired power plants or natural gas power plants, or even, you know, the few nuclear, you know, nuclear fission power plants that we have. That's where you get energy from the splitting of atoms instead of the fusing of atoms. So those things are, I think, are going to be around for a while and not, at least not be replaced by fusion reactors. And so we'll see. When you talk about all this work that's been done, all the promises that have been made, all the resources that are poured into studying this. And so, there must be a big payoff. So the big payoffs are uh, that it could be clean and that it will uh, be producing just a, a lot of energy for a low cost. Is yeah, that the yeah? It's an right. so when you compare it to other clean energies, it's not location based. That is, you don't have to be in a sunny place. You don't have to be in a windy place. You don't have to be in a place that has lots of rain and water for hydropower. So all of those different uh, clean energy sources have some really location-based restrictions. Fusion reactors, you can just put them anywhere. And then it's, you know, once it gets going, the expectation is that it will be very cheap, that, you know, you're, you're not mining, you know, coal or oil and transporting it and so on. So it's, it's something hydrogen. Hydrogen you can get from water. Actually, it's deuterium, which is a hydrogen atom, which has a proton. In it. So again, there's... How we get that deuterium may be more complicated than we anticipate, but it's still not the same as, you know, trying to get, you know, coal out of a coal vein or, um, mm -hmm. you know, getting your oil or gas, you know, transported across the oceans of the earth. So it's in that sense, it simplifies things. It's transportable. It's not, you know, location based. So it, it solves so many problems. I've heard some crazy numbers, like, you know, some small handful of this stuff could power your house for like your lifetime or something. Like Essentially, something yeah. the, the efficiency yeah. also is incredibly high compared to any of the other um, ones. I mean, we technically, so solar power is technically fusion power. It's exactly the same thing, except we're getting a very narrow slice of the photons, <laughs> the energy that's generated by our sun. And we only get it when the earth is facing the sun. So when we're not facing the sun, this sort of solves all of that problem in many right, ways as right. well. Just create a bunch of suns here. Yeah, yeah. I got you. All right. Well, uh, let's let's talk about uh, what I brought you on the program for today. Let's talk about Artemis going back to the moon and maybe Mars. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, so there's Artemis one, which was launched after yeah. some delay. Uh, there's several other Artemis missions planned. So I guess first, just tell our listeners who may not have been paying all that much attention to it. Uh, what is the Artemis program? So the Artemis program is. Uh, 
a program to basically get uh, Americans, but in general, you know, American, American and their allies back to the moon. So the Apollo program was the program that created the Saturn V rocket, which took it, uh, took, you know, astronauts to the moon, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin being the first ones landing on the moon in 1969. Um, Sort of in the mythological sense, Artemis is, is Apollo's sister. <laughs> so that's why they named it that. So now this is essentially the sister program, So, but much more updated to try and get us back to the moon. And um, with the idea in this case of staying there, the original effort was really part of the Cold War. Uh, but the problem was that once that task was achieved, there really wasn't much of a plan afterwards. It was much more of, since we just came off the Super Bowl, to use the foot, American football analogy, uh, this was a Hail Mary pass. That is, it was a long pass. You know, it was caught in the end zone, won the game, incredibly spectacular. But it was not something that really utilized, you know, any kind of your field movements, your running backs, or any of the, anything else to really set up, you know, how you really get to the end zone on a much more regular basis. It's not you don't have Hail Mary passes for every single play. <laughs> and so the idea of uh, Artemis now is to really do that, to really set up the structure so that it's not a Hail Mary pass. It's not a one-off or a few-off. I mean, we went uh, to the moon uh, nine times total, six times we landed uh, with human beings. And so the idea would be to go there and create a much more permanent presence on and near the moon so that it becomes a part of our space program and not just this, you know, one-off sh- effort. Is that why we haven't been there since the seventies? Because we're not trying to re, um, you know, so just just sort of redo that effort. We're trying to do something fundamentally different for the future. Yeah, and 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 I will say, and and I'll, I'll um, the the reality of it is that the American space program, or in in, a, in our democratic system is part of our political system that now we can argue at times and has become more partisan. So you can argue, you know, which party supports it more has been more against it. That's I'm not talking about that. I'm talking it's political in the sense that every single line item on the budget is a political debate between getting money to your district or getting money to your state or, you know, larger national goals or larger local goals, whatever. And the original Apollo program had a very specific goal and it achieved it spectacularly, but it was not fundamentally to really provide a way of regularly going to the moon and staying there. But going to the moon was strangely enough, it was to get there, but not to stay there. And so we didn't stay. Um, just real quick before we move on. Um, now, will your will your fellow nerds will they cancel you for using a football metaphor oh, when talking about science? No, no, that's I mean that's the real <laughs> range of uh, I think that again stereotypes you know they have their uses and, and so on, but fundamentally you know we've got fairly athletic folks who are you know space and science nerds as well, and we have people who you know either played it or just loved watching it or, you know, love various different kinds of sports. Um, well, I use, I use the term nerd lovingly, but uh, I don't want to get you in trouble for, you know. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I think uh, any metaphor that, you know, helps explain things to the largest number of people is worth using. And so I got gotcha. you. So um, 
So let's talk about the Artemis program. So uh, the most recent one, Artemis one, after some delay, it it made uh, it did orbit the moon. Did you what? By the way, did you watch like the videos of the flyby and all that stuff? I did. I did. I wasn't prepared. I didn't really know what I was uh, in for. I just wanted to see the pictures and the flyby video. Um, and so I, I didn't really have any thoughts beforehand of what I would feel watching them. I had a weirdly like emotional response to why i don't know why but but just the slow motion video of the the flyby was really powerful i don't i can't even explain why but it was a really powerful thing to watch i was i've been somewhat cynical about the whole artemis program uh, like i said because it was supposed to be done faster and cheaper and Mm -hmm. was not um and so i was i was not really inclined to be as sort of dewy-eyed about it Mm. But once it was happening, I was dewy-eyed about it. It, it did make that impact on me, and, and I completely relate to that. Yeah, I um, I would encourage. I'll put it in the newsletter that accompanies this episode. I would encourage everybody to go watch that video. There's something really powerful about it, and everybody's seen the the moon disappear over the horizon and the sun disappear over the horizon. Watching the Earth disappear over the horizon, you know, and, and disappear behind the moon was was really kind of powerful but um so uh you mentioned robots and rovers and you know we're already sending you know we sent an unmanned crew to the moon we've sent rovers to mars so why is it so important artemis eventually wants to establish like a moon base or colony and uh and then they want to be able to have that as sort of an intermediate stage between uh earth and mars so why is it so important for us to send humans to these places why not continue to send rovers and robots and those sorts of things and I mean, that's a really fair question. And it's uh, really the difference between um, anything that is sort of live versus pre-programmed. We can now make robots that more or less can do anything pre-programmed. That is, if we know what we want to happen, we can make them do that and even have some leeway of being you know, dynamic and change the, the tactics or whatever. But the sheer flexibility of a human brain that's trained to do something at the location of whatever you're trying to do, picking something up, examining it right on the spot to see if it's good or not, or, you know, with some other tools, it's that kind of return is very hard to come by with robots, Um, at least certainly now. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the critical part in terms of studying things and understanding things. But I think fundamentally in terms of understanding uh, the moon, Mars, and these planets, which have had, you know, Mars, which has had a very different history somehow, even though it it had liquid water on it and so on, understanding what processes brought it to that point, I think really helps us understand the Earth. Mm -hmm. That's what NASA does. It's primarily to study Earth. It's great to understand the other planets. It's great to understand, uh, you know, and, and, and it does that. But in many ways, it, in, it not always, but the majority of the time is what does that tell us about us and Earth and for us to understand Earth better, to understand the science of the geology of the Earth or the you know, evolution of the things on Earth and, and so on. So all of that is really worthwhile in that larger context. And so understanding the moon, which is obviously our closest uh, neighbor in space, um, is, is it becomes really vital uh, over the history of sort of how planets form, how planets create moons. What does do moons? What roles do moons play in the history of a planet? Which we think, you know, going back to the football analogy, that's our linebacker. 
um, that if you look at particularly on the far side of the moon, remember there's no dark side of the moon. <laughs> <laughs> pink well, floyd would disagree but no, 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 I, well, there's a dark, if you say the dark side of the moon it's the pink floyd album love it that's right <laughs> wonderful but um remember it's you know in the case of think of a solar eclipse remember it's coming between us and the sun so the other side right. is getting some right. of course it does that all the time but this is the easiest darn you varjan <laughs> you got <with> your logic <laughs> I'm here to stamp out all those bad ideas. <laughs> uh, but no, but that was the thing. And so in the far side of the moon, there's a particular period in the past. That's, and and it's, it's much more heavily cratered than the side facing the Earth. And it's something called the late heavy bombardment. So that a lot of the stuff that came by, some clearly hit the Earth, but a whole bunch didn't because the moon was there. Yeah. So what is that role? Uh, of a moon have to play with a planet potentially having life. And so really being there and examining things and understanding things can be done some by robots, some by theory, but at the end of the day, there's nothing that matches a human being being there and really absorbing what's going on. And then, yes, it has this added benefit of that. You know, we are not all, all our eggs are not on the earth basket at that point. Sure. You know, I, I was, uh, I'm not, uh, I have no background in this at all, but I, I, I was reading some things in preparation to talk to you and some things I hadn't considered about the dangers of sending someone to Mars, um, like the cumulative radiation. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, the dangers of human being in space and being exposed for that long of a period of time? Yeah, and, and that's a real critical thing, which is that there's, there's a reason why there's life on Earth is we have an atmosphere and the Earth has a magnetic field and there's a lot of bad stuff that comes from space and not just meteors or meteorites, you know, that a lot of it gets burned up in our atmosphere, but there's a lot of radiation. And in this context, we use it in a much more catch-all kind of term, radiation being not just light, like the radiation you get from you know, the light bulb that you're seeing or the radiation from your screen. This is not radiation in a broad sense. There's light, which are photons. But then we also use radiation to encompass high energy, very fast traveling particles. Um, so there's something called alpha particles, which are basically a helium nucleus, two protons, two neutrons. Then there's beta particles, which are fast moving electrons. And then there's a whole slew of other uh, fast moving particles, all of which, whenever they hit you, aren't good for you. <laughs> now, most of that is being kept up by our atmosphere. And most of the, as well as the magnetic field, I mean, the sun is spewing out an enormous amount of radiation beyond, again, the light that we know warms us. And a lot of that gets deflected. A lot of those fast moving particles, not all of them from our sun, there's a whole bunch that comes from the rest of the galaxy, even some from exploding stars. That's just not good for us. And so what you need is you need shielding. And when you make a spacecraft, it's the opposite. You need to make your spacecraft as light as possible because it's hard to lift stuff off the earth. So the lighter it is, the more stuff you can lift up and you can make a bigger spaceship in orbit and then, or even just directly send it from the Earth. That's difficult to do if you're trying to reduce the radiation exposure for the astronauts. Now, um, part of this is um, a question of how much radiation that is. The faster you can get there, then the less in-transit radiation you absorb. Also, um, the things that you really should worry about are not sort of the general radiation environment, although that's not great, but you can make a spacecraft that, you know, is not too heavy, or, but at the same time gives you a fair bit of shielding. The idea is that there are these incredible ejections 
from the sun called coronal mass ejections, which bring about huge amount of very fast moving energetic particles. And that is far worse. So the idea there would, has been that, well, we know what, when that happens, we're monitoring the sun and it takes a while for that stuff to travel all the way out to wherever the astronauts are between the earth and Mars. And so in that case, when we know that's going to be happening, you have a special area. It's not the whole spacecraft, but you have basically a bunker on the spacecraft, which has a much more shielding. The astronauts go there until the radiation environment changes, until that radiation passes, uh, high energy particles pass. And so then, you know, you're, you, you preserve them in that sense. Uh, so it is an issue. It's something that can be dealt with. And one of the things that, one of the ways of dealing with it also is that the faster we can get there, the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the question is, what happens when you do get there? If you're going to live on Mars for many, many years, and again, it's easiest to get to Mars every two years. That is the alignment of the orbits of the Earth and Mars are such that the pathway is the shortest. Mm-hmm. So if you're only going to do it during those times, um, then you have to wait two years. So you have to live on Mars for two years. And Mars's atmosphere is incredibly thin, so not much protection there. And one of the things that potentially why Mars has a very thin atmosphere is it doesn't have a magnetic field like the Earth. How it lost that magnetic field is actually a very interesting question and people are working on it. And there was a mission called Mars Insight, which was studying the interior of Mars to try and get a sense of this. And it's given back some results and we're waiting for some more. But it looks like the core of Mars cooled off quicker than the core of the Earth. That is, the molten core of the Earth is what generates the magnetic field. But that magnetic field isn't just, you know, great for having a compass to show you where North is. It's the fact that it deflects a lot of these particles. But without Mars having that, Similarly, without the moon having that, what do you do when you're there for so long? So then that's why going to the moon becomes a great staging ground for going to Mars, is that you have to figure out how to live essentially underground, because that's the easiest large-scale protection that you don't have to carry with you to understand. And then how do you do that? You know, How are all these kinds of things? And if something's going wrong, you don't have to wait two years to bring your astronauts back from Mars, from the moon, you can come back much more quickly. So Mm -hmm. doing all of these kinds of things at the moon is a much safer and easier way to sort of lay out all of the difficulties that you could potentially run into. And then once you've figured those things out, once you have the people who know how to deal with those things, then you take the greater risk of traveling to Mars and then setting up something on a much longer time scale on Mars. Wow, this all sounds incredibly complicated. Uh, I know about the problem of gravity from Michael Caine in Interstellar. Yes. You know, he, he, he was trying to solve gravity the whole time. Yeah. Uh, and then he was lying. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, and it sounds like, I mean, uh, not to, let's, just, let's just talk about as many movies as we can here. Sure. Uh, it sounds like we're going to have to send a lot of uh, Bruce Willis's and, uh, you know, like Armageddon, people, construction workers to the moon to be digging all the holes in the ground and, you know. Building the bases. Well, that, that's that's really true because, fun, I mean, the early versions are going to be a lot of prefab things, which is the way we've done the space station. You, you make the modules here on Earth, you just loft it up there, and just the job of the astronauts then is just to connect them up. But I think ideally what you want is how do you do the construction there once that's, you know, uh, or again, you know, some combination of the two. You don't have to, you know, have it just one or the other. It is one of the things where... Um, it will be changing 
the character of who you want to be an astronaut. Mm -hmm. That is, for now, it has been sort of this very select group, primarily scientists, engineers, and pilots, and doctors. And because of, you know, all the things that they're been required to do. But fundamentally, if it is really a construction project, it's easier to send, you know, <laughs> to train a construction worker to be an astronaut than to get an astronaut to, you know, learn all the intricacies of how to build something in a very sure, difficult yeah. environment versus somebody who's, you know, has 10, 15, 20 years of construction experience in mines and so on and so forth. That's so Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. Yeah. I think that's the. No, yeah. I, yeah. And, and, and in that sense, again, for that case, I think it was not as obvious because they were doing some very specific <laughs> drilling. Uh, one very, it would, I think it would have been easier to train the astronauts to be drillers <laughs> rather than the other way, and have the and because it wasn't so far away, have the you know drillers talk to them, talk them through it. Yeah, but we're talking about something much larger scale with much many, many, many more skills required. And this is not to you know back on the drillers. That's tough, I know, but still. <laughs> Well, just remember this. Now, I know you know people at NASA because you work for NASA, Varjan. So, if you could just let them know, don't send Steve Buscemi because oh. he's the one that went crazy and, right? like, you know, almost <laughs> derailed the whole thing. So, well, before I let you go, because I know you got to get out of here soon, I want to ask you a few just overarching questions. So, tell me from, from uh, Varjan's perspective, what are the most exciting things happening in science for you right now? It doesn't got to be the most exciting thing for everybody, but for you, for Varjan, what? What are the things that really get you excited about science right now? Well, I will say, uh, and the you know James Webb Space Telescope, I'm really anticipating the new images and, and scientific results that we'll be getting from it. When shall we expect those? So it'll be just coming on a sort of more or less continuous basis coming out. You know, they had what were called the early release science. They've just and now they've gone into more regular um, operations. So they are now implementing the proposals from astronomers from all over the world that had been collected before the launch, in fact. And then they had the second round of proposals and going through. So that's where you get the creativity of humanity coming into play. And that is, you know, there's, there's, there are obvious questions that need to be addressed. Dark matter, dark energy, exoplanets, and understanding them. So these have very large programs that are churning away as we speak. And so those programs were put together in the first place. So we're going to get, you know, results from those large programs coming out, which is going to be great. But then separate from that is all these other people doing all this other kind of science, you know, whatever they thought was interesting and doing things that I think fundamentally, you know, will give us some really nice surprises. So that's what I'm looking forward to on that front. Um, generally speaking, I'm very curious to see, um, again, I don't know what is specifically going on, but the fact that we have these mRNA vaccines that were developed for COVID and then we had sort of the version that for the Omicron variant I'm really curious to see how that affects vaccinations in general and how we sort of get to treating a whole slew of potential diseases that are coming up. Because I think uh, the fact that they could really tailor things so quickly in a vaccine on a, you know, uh, for a very large population, that this was not just for something, some tiny group of people that they were doing, able to do this quickly for. This was we're talking about hundreds of millions of people just in the U.S. and broadly right. speaking. So I think that in terms of medicine, I think we're really potentially can have really big surprises coming from that at this point. Um, and then the thing you know that's worrying me and I think that's worrying everybody else. It's, it's one of those things, the, both the cost and the benefit is 
chat GPT, the AIs mm. that are coming online. And I'm incredibly impressed. It's far beyond what I thought they would be at in terms of not just communicating, but also understanding requests, things that were truly the realm of science fiction movies not that long ago that I thought would absolutely happen. I thought you could, you know, at some point just sit in front of your computer and say, you know, give me a sort of snowy hillside landscape. And the computer understands that and then sort of gives it to you and go, no, 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 Uh, late snow, not early snow, you know. And so for it to understand that and and, and, then say, you know, these are the kinds of things that it's starting to really understand. Uh, And so those are the kinds of things that I think, you know, both – you know, with anticipating with great, you know, joy and, and the incredible things that we can be achieving here and sort of opening up things for people's creativity to come through in a way that they could not have before. But also the fear of exactly, you know, how, you know, what's fake and what's real. I mean, that's the one thing that, you know, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. No, no, maybe it won't be. <laughs> no, no, deep fakes are getting really good. Yeah, no, the deep fakes are strikingly good and scary if, if you just want to see how good one of those could be on a commercial scale basically go look at jimmy kimmel interviewing himself from 20 years ago um this is uh he had a 20th anniversary anniversary special and he has himself today interviewing himself on video from 20 years ago this was not pre-taped this was a deep fake and he was interviewing of a younger version of himself. And he looks 20 years, he looks exactly like he did when he, 20 years ago when he started the show. And then of course, today we know what he looks like. His voice is younger. His expressions are there. Now there's a few glitches here and there that you can tell, okay, that's a deep fake, but oh my God, that's not where I thought we were there already. And this one was striking. So that's another thing, both, you know, exciting and uh, at the same time. So uh, you talk about all this promise of this technology, and mm-hmm. I've, I've used the chat GPT. I've actually used Dolly too, the, uh, the image, one? image generator. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but y- you sounded really ominous when you were talking about it. So besides deep fakes and forgeries and you know plagiarism, all that kind of stuff, do you have other concerns about AI? Uh- isn't that enough? Uh, <laughs> well, you sounded even more. I mean, that's it's bad. But, but, you, but I think, yeah, no, that's that's the thing is um, I think it is one of those things where we've just gotten so used to sort of assuming certain things are real and they represent reality. And I think fundamentally when we lose that, when you, you have to question every image that you see in terms of whether it's representing reality. I'm not talking about, you know, the Dali in terms of art and so on. That's that's definitely a question as to what does art become when somebody can physically create that art and when, what, what is the value of the art when somebody talks about that art and a machine creates it. I'm not saying that, you know, one is bad or not. I think that's definitely a value judgment that we have to sort of come, come to at some point. Um, but the reality of reality is, you know, going away in terms of, you know, if, if you don't, you know, the, the joke is obviously, you know, post, you know, cameras on our phones. If if you don't have a picture, it didn't happen. Well, mm-hmm. now you have a picture. Did it happen? But, uh, excuse me, sir. I have to push back a little bit on you. I mean, Americans are pretty good at dealing with misinformation and disinformation, right? All right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but no, but that's, I think you, as you bring up a, a, 
the point very well. Look at how some disinformation has ripped our society apart in so oh, many gosh. ways. Poisoned it, yeah. Yeah. And now imagine, you know, that hundredfold more. On steroids, yeah. right, yeah. All right, real quick before you go, because you got to get out of here in a few minutes. Uh, two quick questions. How concerned should we be about space junk? That's a real concern. That's a very high concern. And there are people who are thinking about it and trying to solve it. But I think we're, again, two steps ahead of this, uh, even the notion of a solution, because you have so many companies uh, that are putting so many satellites that, you know, any single failure that you know, causes a couple to crash and, you know, these bits that are going out there at, you know, 17,000 miles an hour, uh, is it's going to be a disaster and we may be cut off from space if we do have a truly cascade effect when you have too many of these collisions. Um, and again, serious people are putting serious thought and time to try and see how we could deal with this. But it, it's a really big problem. And unfortunately, um, I think the, again, the gold rush of large numbers of low-flying satellites to provide, again, very good things you know, for humanity, but at the same time, uh, that is that could be devastating in terms of our access to space. Yeah, I was, uh, and again, this is a really bad example, but uh, I was watching that movie Gravity. Yeah, yeah. And there was space junk, and 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 I had never thought about it before, but like, yeah, like you know, something the size of a of a penny traveling at you know a billion miles an hour will just rip right through your skull, right? Yeah. I mean, but but that's the thing is that it's not just rip right through you individually, but the idea is that once it hits something that's physical, then that generates similarly high, right. fast moving more, things in right, multiple right. directions. That sort of that cascade effect in gravity was very well visualized. There's a lot of other physics problems, but that's a, as a visualization yeah, yeah, of yeah. this cascade effect. It's really worrisome. And now when you know that you know, there are companies that are proposing to put 10,000 s- satellites in low Earth orbit, Jeez. it's and yeah. already, it, that's difficult. You know, now, th- you can be responsible or irresponsible. You can work hard on it. I know SpaceX is trying to be very responsible, but they're not the only company out there. And there right. are things that can't be anticipated, you know, and, um, and you do your best to anticipate them. But, you know, what happens when something goes wrong? Things will mm-hmm. always go wrong. What you want is a solution to that. Right now, we don't have one. All right, real quick before you go, mm-hmm. have you ever watched the History Channels? There are millions of alien shows, and the guy on there who everything in the world is, yep, it was the aliens. <laughs> have you seen any of those shows? I've, I have, I have. I, I use them more <laughs> for entertainment than anything else. Sadly, apparently, not a lot of other people think that's more- aliens. It was aliens. It was aliens. <laughs> It's disappointing because whenever I go to the gym and I'm like cycling through the channels on mm-hmm. the treadmill, like I get, I want to watch a history program yeah. and it's always some stupid alien program. Yeah. So, Varjan, thank you so much for joining us again today. Oh, happy to join you and happy to talk about Artemis and looking forward to humanity stepping back on the moon. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you, keep smiling until then, who cares about the clouds when we're together, just sing a song and bring the sunny weather, happy trails to you, till we
trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.